Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. What I didn't realize until I was wrapping up the message this week is how many proofs there are in Nahum of God's prophetic word coming true. And it's one of those things that you wouldn't really think about it, but if you have friends or family members that are skeptics, take these slides and just show them the last few pages sometime of where God declared something and it came to pass exactly as he said some decades later. It's really amazing. So before we open up uh, the word of God, let's, let's go to prayer as we always should. Lord, we thank you so much again for this time. God, we thank you for your prophetic word. God, we thank you that your word is the only book ever written that writes history in advance. And that, God, it is the authentication of your spirit and your thumbprint all over the Bible. God, we thank you that by your word you spoke everything into existence. By your word we can have the faith to stand in these days. And by your word we can be healed and have peace. That we can abide in you. And that that is the covenant and the contract by which we can enter into the throne room of the universe for all eternity. And we thank you for it, God. Be with us as we open up Nahum and close this incredible book, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. All right, so uh, remember, I guess it would help if I turn this on. Let's see if, oh, it works, okay. So remember, you know, as as you're studying the word of God, this is, just kind of a general statement I want everyone to keep in mind always whenever we're studying the Bible. You know, my goal as as a teacher, as someone that just loves the Word of God, is to give you a sense of urgency to be a self-feeder, to be in the Bible, to repair the biblical illiteracy in the body of Christ, to give you a reason to go home and to daily spend time in the Word of God. I do not want you to be dependent on me (laughs) to ask questions or to come or to uh, feel like you have to run and and ask me every time something comes up or anyone, any other pastor, not just me, but anyone. You know, I want to equip you to be a self-feeder of the word of God because that's where truth is. There is only one truth and his name's Jesus. I am the truth, he said. So if we can take everything back to the truth, which is Jesus, you will never be led astray, ever, because there is only one source of truth. And so what I hope you'll get out of all of these studies as we move forward, and even as we studied Revelation and Hebrews verse by verse, is that you get a a sense of the word is, number one, it's inexhaustible. Uh, you You will never learn everything there is to learn in it. Your questions will go deeper and wider and further than you ever thought possible. Because God, it's a constant pursuit of Jesus. And 
there will never be a time in your life that if you are really pursuing the Lord and seeking after him and his word, that it gets boring or trivial. Uh, there may be times that you're being attacked or you're under some kind of oppression or something's going on in your life that you don't feel like doing it. Those are the times you should do it even more and because the enemy wants to make you complacent, right? And just think that, well, all these genealogies, there's no point in reading this or uh, this Old Testament doesn't apply to us today. What's the point of reading it? Well, Jesus said in the volume of the book, it is written of me in Psalms 40, verse 7. So every verse in the Bible speaks of him. And if we can study it and figure out how does it speak of him, then it'll never get trivial. And it's just, it's a lifelong journey and pursuit of building your faith. And as you're doing it, one of your guiding verses should be 1 John 2, 27 and 28. That, but the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you. But as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie. And even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. Now, the anointing that you have, see, opening the word of God is a spiritual exercise, not a logical one. And so, when you have people that are not saved, that are not Holy Spirit filled, and they open this book, what does it say about them? Those who, they scoff at the cross, right? They believe it's foolishness that the death of some carpenter on a wooden cross almost 2,000 years ago would be the pivotal turning point in all of human history and the point at which everything comes back to. You know, they see it as foolishness because they're, lo- they're trying to think through it logically. But it's a spiritual exercise and you need the Holy Spirit, the anointing which, re- which you've received of him that abides in you to teach you everything in the word of God. You don't need a man to explain it to you. You need the Holy Spirit to give you understanding and you need to take it to the Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit may, the Holy Spirit may bring people into your life to help answer those questions, but give him the opportunity first and let him point you to things to help answer and to lead you in truth. So I hope that makes sense. But that's what you need to do. So write down, the thing that I love to do as you go through the Bible and, and get through it once, start over. Get through a second time, start over. Get a journal and write down every question that you have and take it to the Holy Spirit and watch him miraculously move in your life to answer those questions. Because what you see and need out of some passages is different than what I need or see or what Mason may see or anyone else in this room may see. And the Holy Spirit is going to help teach you and gird you up in truth to conquer whatever's going on in your life. It's a personal relationship. So as we wrap up Nahum here, as we open chapter 3, remember in John 7, 50 through 53, when Nicodemus saith unto them, he that came to Jesus by night, being one of them, doth our law judge any man before it hear him and know what he, do, what he do, doeth? They answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. And every man went into his own house. So as a reminder, to the city of Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, the Lord sent two prophets, Jonah and Nahum. And both came out of Galilee. So whoever these people were in John 7 talking to Nicodemus did not know the word of God. They hadn't studied their Bible enough to realize that, oh, there were prophets out of Galilee. Nahum and Jonah. But if you remember, Jonah prophesied over Nineveh and the entire nation repented and turned to the Lord. 
and Nahum was about roughly 100 years after Jonah. So just think roughly from the people that Jonah preached to, Nahum delivered a message to their grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Think three to four generations after those people. If you remember, Jonah had a very difficult calling. Nineveh was this tyrannical nation that completely despised Israel. They were brutally barbaric to anyone they conquered, and we're going to look at some examples of that today. They would line roads with their enemies' bodies just to send a message to other nations. And Jonah's message from God, if you recall from Jonah 3, verse 3, it's brief, it's to the point, and it has no remedy, supposedly, on the surface. Now, we know from Jeremiah, God's character was in play, that if any city of which he declares destruction on repents and turns to him, he will forgive them and heal their city. So, if you recall, the king of Nineveh took it on faith, and everyone from him all the way to the least in the city repented and turned to the Lord, and the Lord relent his judgment and healed Nineveh. It's one of the greatest revivals in the entire Bible. Is an entire city, probably full of over a million people, turning to the Lord at one time. So Jonah had a very difficult message. If you remember, he didn't want to go. Remember, he gets mad at the Lord the whole time, and Lord, if I go do this, they're going to listen, and they're going to repent, and you're going to not have this judgment, and I'm going to be really upset about that because I want these people to get wiped off the face of the earth for what they're doing to my people, and he was pretty bitter. You know, and it's easy in these last days that we're living in to look around the earth right now and feel some bitterness towards certain individuals, maybe those that are trying to get us to uh, not eat meat, for example, uh, those overseas that would want you to um, own nothing and be happy. You know, it's kind of easy to sit back and think, who are these people? Lord, wipe them out. And, but that's not the stance we should take. We should be praying for them because they're eternal just like we are, and Jesus died for them. And let, judgment and vengeance is his, according to Romans 12, not ours. So we need, to, we need to lay that at the feet of Jesus. But Nahum delivers a prophetic message to the people in Nineveh. And like I mentioned, these people were their grandchildren and great-grandchildren. So three generations had gone by, and these people completely turned away from the Lord. Now again, just think about 100 years ago in this nation where we were in the 1920s, through World War I, World War II, the Great Depression, how people were, how they raised their children, their families, and look where we are today. So it's easy to sit back and think, wow, that is wild, but we're living in it today. We are absolutely living in the same situation today. There are people, 100 years ago, the question was probably, where do you go to church, not do you go to church? It was probably, hey, what are you reading in your Bible, not uh, what novel are you reading? You know, those kind of things. I mean, people, it was the expectation in this nation, right, that we were a Christian nation. And I'll never forget when Obama was president, and he made some statement at a press conference that uh, we are no longer a Christian nation. And... At the time, you're kind of thinking, well, that's pretty, that's kind of arrogant. How dare you say that? You know, we're, we've got Christians everywhere, but he, he might be right. Uh, when you look at the statistics in the nation, it used to be somewhere around 80 to 85% of people called themselves an evangelical Christian. And now I think it's less than a third 
just roughly, was the last stat I saw. So just think about how far the pendulum has swung and our responsibility as God's people to get this nation back on track. So it's up to us, as Second Chronicles 7.14, it's up to us to get this nation healed because God makes a promise that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray, and fast, I will hear them from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. So take that serious. We all need to be in prayer for our nation. But Nahum has a very simple outline. It's short, three chapters. We are going to finish it in three messages here. So chapter one was the proclamation on who is God's judgment against. Chapter two is the description of how will that judgment fall. And chapter three is the explanation as to why that judgment is falling. So you have the who, how, and why. And in chapter one, if you remember, God's judgment on his people's enemies, on the Ninevites and Assyria, was also great, great comfort to the Israelites, to his people. And to give that application to us today, when you study the seven-year tri- tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble from Jeremiah, that seven-year period, the 70th week of Daniel that we studied in depth for 13 weeks here, when you look at that, yes, it's a declaration of judgment on God's enemies, but it's also great comfort to his people. You should be comforted by prophecy. It is not to scare you. It is not to incite fear. It is not to make you want to bury your head and and get in a bunker somewhere and hide out. It is to make you and to give you hope of an expected end that Jesus wins and we get to get out of here. He is going to rapture his bride before he unleashes anything on the earth. You are, not, you are promised specifically to be delivered from that time of trouble. Not be preserved through it, but delivered from the very time of trouble. And if you have questions about that, come grab me or, or go back and find any of our messages on the rapture and, all of the, and the prophetic study through De- Daniel's 70th week. But we're going to finish Nahum today, chapter 3, the explanation as to why. Okay, so op- open up the chapter here, verse 1. Woe to the bloody city, it is all full of lies and robbery, the prey departeth not. So the Lord is calling the capital of the world at that time a bloody city. Now if God says it's a bloody city, it's a bloody city. Uh, He doesn't use that phrase lightly. And you can take that and just think about the United States today before the Supreme Court turned over Roe v. Wade. Think about some of the major cities in the world and what God's perspective of them was in terms of the shedding of innocent blood in the womb of the mother and the violence that pervades across cities all over this nation. You know, you can look at, I just grabbed one headline, but I heard this stat a while back and I thought it was staggering. This is from an article in The Independent from December of last year. Young men are three times more likely to be shot dead in two U.S. cities than in Iraq or Afghanistan. And when you look at the statistics of it, down here in this, this is an excerpt from the article, compared to the risk of combat death faced by U.S. soldiers deployed to Afghanistan, the findings showed that young men living in the most violent zip code of Chicago had a 3.23 times higher average risk of firearm-related homicide. That's a bloody city. So you're, t- you're telling me you can take a trip to Chicago 
and be more likely to be shot than going and deployed in Afghanistan by a factor of three. It's not even just that it's equal. It's three times as more dangerous. You know, the United States, we have some serious issues that violence is pervade in these big cities, and it's because there's an absence of the word of God, because the word of God is life-giving. It's, it's peace. It's abiding in Jesus. Think about Genesis 4, verse 10 with Cain and Abel. Remember when Cain slew Abel, and the Lord comes to him and says, this is God speaking, what hast thou done? Like he didn't know. You know, I love God's sarcasm when he ever asks people questions. Hey, Cain, what have you done there? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. When you think about the blood that is spilled all over this, this nation and these cities, that blood cries out to the Lord for vengeance. And God's justice does not sleep forever. Thankfully, you know, praise God. But when you think about the number of children that are, that are murdered or whatever it is, it, that blood cries out to him. And we have a duty and a responsibility to be praying that peace and forgiveness goes all over this land. Because uh, I, I, at any minute, don't be surprised if an angel knocks on your door and is like, hey, come on, we got to get out of here. This is, uh, we got to go, <laughs> like, like Lot in Sodom. Uh, in verse 2 here, the noise of a whip and the noise of a rattling of the wheels and of the prance, prancing horses and of the jumping chariots, the horseman lifteth up both the bright sword and the glittering spear, and there is a multitude of slain and a great number of carcasses, and there is none end of their corpses. This, they stumble upon their corpses. So God is saying when Nineveh's taken over, the number of their corpses, the Ninevites, the Assyrians, will be so great, there's no end to how many people will be killed when that city is destroyed finally. Now, the Assyrians and their armies, were they absolutely were violent and cruel people. Um, one of the kings from, of Assyria from 883 B.C. to 859 B.C., he wrote this in one of his, his journals. This is translated for us today, but... Um, he said, I crossed to the Kinaba, the fortified city of Halui. I drew near with the masses of my troops and by my furious battle onset, I stormed, I captured the city. 600 of their warriors I put to the sword, 3,000 captives I burned with fire. And I did not, sorry, the picture's kind of covering up the words there. I did not let a single one of them alive to serve as a hostage. Their governor I captured alive, their corpses I formed into pillars their young men and maidens I burned in the fire. And then if you keep reading, he says, with their blood, I dyed the mountain red like wool. See, these kings they, of Assyria, they were vicious people. They were brutal. Um, Salmaneser, the king after him, he wrote in one of his, his uh, journals, a pyramid of heads I reared in front of his city, speaking of a city that he captured. If any of you remember Sennacherib from the Bible, 705 B.C. to 681 B.C., he wrote, I cut them up like lambs, speaking of a city that he conquered. These kings were brutal and vicious people. This is one of the reasons why Jonah did not want a message of repentance taught, spoken to them, or the opportunity, I should say. And this is also why, a hundred years later, the Lord sends Nahum in their place, because they didn't stop doing what they were doing, even though they had turned to the Lord. In verse 4 here, because of the multitude of the whoredoms of the well-favored harlot, the mistress of witchcrafts that selleth nations through their, her whoredoms, 
and families through her witchcrafts. So the Assyrians were not only idolatry-worshiping people, but they had led other nations and families astray through their idolatry and witchcraft and abominations. They were exporting this all over the world, so to speak. Now, you can think about how does that apply to, to the United States today. I mean, just think about everything that we export to the world from our culture. It's, it's despicable. But they sold out other groups of people by exporting their abominations, their trafficking in merchandise. This is also why the Lord has such a staunch judgment on Babylon in Revelation when the city is destroyed again. And remember, the, the merchants of the earth mourn when they see the smoke of that city rising up. Now, Babylon's a very special place in the eyes of God because it is where all idolatry started, was in Babel, in Babylon with Nimrod. It all started back in Genesis. And you can find the trace of it where it left Babylon and followed the, the ecclesiastical money, so to speak, throughout the Middle East and ultimately settling over in Europe. Uh, but according to, to Zechariah, it will come back to where it began for God's judgment. Okay, so God will not only allow, he will only allow treachery to go so far. And so the abominations of Nineveh had almost reached to heaven. And you see this, remember what he told Abraham? After 400 years, your descendants will return to this land for the sin of the Amorites is not yet full. It's a, there's a volumetric concept with the Lord. He was giving the Amorites space to repent, but they didn't. And so his judgment came down. The same with Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember what he tells Abraham and uh, Sarai in the tent? He says, the cry of that city is grievous. It's reached to heaven. Okay, that's a volumetric term that God is using, that their sin had gone so far and built up so high that he had to do something about it, that he couldn't allow it to go on anymore. That's also why he spread the people out in the Tower of Babel. Remember, he, they could do anything now because they could communicate. That also is a key that um, Satan learns something at the Tower of Babel. He does not want you and I to be able to communicate as Christians because then we could accomplish anything. And God kind of set that standard. What he wants is to confuse the church. So if you notice, a lot of, a lot of what Satan does is he perverts and twists the word of God. See, his war is with the word. It's not necessarily with you and I. It's we're in the way as collateral damage, so to speak. But if he can pervert the word and get you isolated, then he can destroy you. And he can help separate the church and divide it. That's why, how did he come to Jesus right in the wilderness? It's always with the word. And it was out of context. And he took, the, he took our Lord and he said, well, if you can do anything, turn this stone to bread and eat it. You know, he was quoting Deut out of Deuteronomy. And Jesus refuted him out of Deuteronomy because he knew the word. He is the word. But just keep that in mind. So if we can communicate clearly through God's word, the church can be strong. But if, if Satan gets his way and he gets in to divide, then it becomes very weak. Okay, in verse 5 here. Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will discover thy skirts upon thy face, and I will show the nations thy nakedness and the kingdoms thy shame. Okay, you and I are not really familiar with this term, but it's the skirt throughout the Bible is a reference to one's authority. Okay, when someone wore a robe, 
or a skirt, as they would call it in the Bible, they would have insignias or crests or patches that are sewed on that where their authority was. And that's what the Lord is referring to. He's saying, I'm against the Nineveh. I will discover thy skirts. In other words, I will show your authority to the, to the world. And guess what? It's going to be naked and you will have none because your authority has been taken from you. Now, you can find this truth throughout God's word, but remember what David did to Saul when he cut off his skirt and his robe in 1 Samuel 24, verse 4? And the men of David said unto him, Behold the day of which the Lord said unto thee, Behold, I will deliver thine enemy into thine hand, that thou mayest do to him as it shall seem good unto thee. Then David arose and cut off the skirt of Saul's robe privily. Remember when David was hiding in the cave? And Saul was chasing after him, looking for him, and Saul slept in the same cave. Of course, it wasn't a coincidence, but he slept in the same cave, and David came at night, and his men are saying, hey, he's been delivered into your hand. You can do anything to him. Go and murder him. Take care of this guy finally. But David had respect unto God's anointed. Remember, he told people constantly, do not touch the hair of God's anointed. God will take care of him. That's not my place. And David comes to him and he cuts the skirt where his insignia was or his crest. So then when Saul leaves, what happens? David holds it up to show him as proof that, hey, I could have killed you. God delivered you into my hand, but I spared you because I'm not the judge, jury, and executioner. You have an anointing by the king, and I'm not the one to say that ends right now. God is. You know, we have to be careful with that. Even today, you know, just what I would encourage all of us to do, if you see someone out there who is a pastor, a preacher, uh, someone who's teaching God's word or is, has an anointing on them for something, and they are in error in some way or outside of God's word, we need to be praying for them. We need to lift them up in prayer before we attack them. Lift them up in prayer. I mean, just... It's, it's amazing what God will do when we lift people up in prayer. You know, we did that um, here in church some, a long time ago for someone in a particular large pastor in our nation. And I'm, I'm hoping the Lord will work through that. But remember Ruth and Boaz in Ruth chapter 3 verse 9? And he said, who art thou? Remember Ruth sneaks in and sleeps in the tent with Boaz? And Boaz wakes up and he's like, what is going on? There's a lady in my, in my tent with me. What did I do? And Ruth is, is kind of saying, hey, it's okay. Boaz is going, who art thou? And she answered, I am Ruth, thine handmaid. Spread therefore thy skirt over thy handmaid, for thou art a near kinsman. See, so you miss that if you don't understand the authority that he was wearing on his robe. What she's saying, it, wasn't a, it, wasn't, it was not a physical declaration. It was a declaration of, Boaz, take your authority and spread it over me and my household. I want to marry you. You are my near kinsman. And by you, obviously through Ruth and Boaz comes David and ultimately the Messiah. So it was a very prophetic uh, event. There's actually seven Gentile brides in the Bible, if you look them up, from Eve all the way uh, ending with the church, which is amazing because uh, seven is obviously the number of completion of what God does on behalf of man. And we are the Gentile bride of Christ, the church. And there's seven of them, Ruth being one of them. But you can, there's so much in Ruth. It's such an amazing story. 
uh, prophetically of our Messiah. Remember the woman with the issue of blood when Jesus was walking through the crowd and he was in the crowd and they were pressing against him and a woman had this issue of blood for 12 years. Now it's amazing what was Jesus on his way to do. He was on his way to raise up a young woman who had had an issue for 12 years, a 12-year-old. And so 12 is the number of the kingdom, and there's a message there also that on Jesus' way to raise up a Jewish young woman, there's a Gentile woman who comes through the crowd to get saved and healed in that process. It's, it's a declaration of the difference of the church and by blood and Israel. But remember, she touches the hem of his, what? His robe or his garment, and she's immediately healed. And remember, he's asking his disciples, wait, who touched me? And they're all going, there's thousands of people around you. How are we going to know who's touching you? And he goes, no, somebody touched me and authority went out right away. See, she had faith in the authority that Jesus wore on his skirt or robe. And so she touched it and she was healed immediately. You and I can do the same thing. You and I can take Great, great faith in the authority of Jesus. Uh, There is nothing too big for him. So back to Nahum, when God is saying, thy nakedness, I will show the nations with thy skirt, he's talking about their authority and how he's going to remove it from them. They will have it no longer. And sure enough, as I mentioned a couple times, a lot of people throughout history thought Nineveh was just some legendary mystical city that didn't even exist. That's how utterly God wiped it off the face of the earth and buried it. So their authority, not only did he take, but they never got it back. Okay, in verse six here, and I will cast abominable filth upon thee and make thee vile, and I'll set thee as a gazing stock, and it shall come to pass that all they that look upon thee shall flee from thee and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who will bemoan her? When shall I seek comforters for thee? So the people that showed no mercy to the Israelites and the other nations will be given no mercy. Okay, that's what God is saying. They're going to reap what they sowed. And that's a concept all through the Bible we're going to talk about here in a minute. But in verse 8, Art thou better than populous know that was uh, situate among the rivers that had the waters round about it, whose rampart was the sea and her wall was from the sea? So if you don't know what the city is, Populous Snow was better known to the Hebrews as No Amon. It's a house of the god Amon. It was an ancient city, the capital of Egypt, that you might know as Thebes from history. And Assyria herself had conquered Thebes and wiped it out. So Thebes was very familiar to them. Thebes sat in the middle of the rivers of Egypt, and the sea was its protection, They were very prideful and arrogant and thinking, there's no way anyone's going to conquer us. The sea is surrounding us. We are protected. Well, Assyria came down and wiped them off the face of the map. But not Egypt, but that city. Okay, so God is using something that they would be familiar with. He's speaking to them in that way. In verse 9, Ethiopia and Egypt were her strength and it was infinite. Put and Lubum were thy helpers. So put and... Lubim, it's northern Africa, like think of Libya, that whole northern Africa portion west of Egypt. That's kind of that area in the Bible when you hear those names. Uh, They're referred to as those areas, those geographical areas, are referred to as the inhabitants 
of a thirsty or scorched land, the Libyans. Now, if you ever want to see that, the inhabitants of a scorched land, get on Google Earth or Google Maps, whatever, and go just look at the Mediterranean Sea and kind of zoom out where you can see Europe and then Northern Africa. And just look at the difference of the desert versus the lush land and green and mountains everywhere. Like think of Italy, Greek, or uh, Greece, you know, all those nations. And it's incredible. I mean, it truly is a scorched land. You think of the, the desert out there. Second Chronicles 12, 3 with 1,200 chariots and threescore thousand horsemen, and the people were without number that came with him out of Egypt, the Lubims, the Sukkims, and the Ethiopians. See, Lubims, it's only mentioned twice in the Bible. Lubim is only mentioned here. Lubims is mentioned two other places, being the plural of it, obviously. But they're in 2 Chronicles 12.3 and 2 Chronicles 16.8, where they, were, they had some kind of alliance with the Ethiopians and Egypt. And so God is saying, Hey, you Assyrians, remember when you conquered Thebes and these other nations came to try to help them? Even though they had their help, they, couldn't, they could not resist my judgment. So that's the Lord's pointing them to that. Okay, in verse 10, yet was she carried away, she went into captivity. Her young children also were dashed in pieces at the top of all the streets, and they cast lots for her honorable men. And all her great men were bound in chains. So he, the Lord is telling the Assyrians that as you destroyed no Ammon or Thebes, so will I destroy you and your nation. All of their honorable men were bound in chains. All of your honorable men are going to be dashed and their blood will be spread on the mountains of, of Nineveh. So reaping and sowing, they're going to reap what they sowed, ultimately, the Assyrians. Think about Galatians 6, verses 7 through 8. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Now, this principle of reaping and sowing, sowing and reaping, it's all over the Bible how often you see someone do something and it comes back to them ultimately. Think about Jacob. Remember how conniving Jacob was? I mean, you, you would not want to buy anything from Jacob because he would, he would trick you and rob you out of something. Well, what happened when he went to get a wife from Laban, he was tricked. He thought he was serving for uh, Rebecca for seven years and it turned out he got his, her sister instead, and then he had to serve another seven years. And, or I'm sorry, Rachel, not Rebecca. Rebecca was Isaac's wife. Uh, but you see that happen, remember? And that's all through the Bible. Well, the same principle applies to you and I. God's character is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. So in your life, it's just a simple question for you to think about. You know, what are you reaping? What are you sowing? And as a result, what are you reaping? If you are sowing in your life uh, fruit of the Spirit, being loving, being at peace, uh, joyfully around people, serving them, uh, helping out people, giving, you're going to reap all of that back multiple times over. God, God has that in his system of government. 
And it's he always rewards people for when they reap, they sow things in the spirit. When you sow things in the flesh, it's very disappointing. Um, I can tell you from personal experience, it's extremely disappointing. You will think you're getting something great out of it on the backside, and you're not. (laughs) It always disappoints. It never fails. It will disappoint you. So if you stay focused, remember what Jesus said? Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. So sow in the kingdom, sow in the spirit, sow life and life abundantly to those around you. Lift them up, pour into people, pray over your children, your grandchildren, your spouse, sow time with them. I mean, all of that, you're going to reap that back, I promise. Uh, God promises that, not just me. But <laughs> uh, So the prophetic writings of Nahum, they don't take place, keep this in mind, until about 40 years after they were written. So when Nahum, remember it's 100 years between Jonah and Nahum, it's another 40 years before what Nahum writes actually comes to pass. So just keep that in mind. This was a, a prophecy that, that stayed for about four decades or a generation in the Bible, 38 years roughly. In verse 11, thou also shalt be drunken, thou shalt be hid, thou also shalt seek strength because of the enemy. So the, the destruction is going to make the Assyrians dizzy They shall be drunken. They're going to wobble around and be dizzy because of the storm of the enemy taking them out. All thy strongholds shall be like fig trees with the first ripe figs. If they be shaken, they shall even fall into the mouth of the eater. Now, if you're not familiar with what the Lord is saying here, if you took a fig tree, when the first ripe figs came off, if you took that branch and shook it, you would, take all, you would make all the fruit drop off because they're not mature enough to hang on against a strong wind. That's what God is saying about the strongholds of Nineveh. They're going to be shaken and they will fall just like the first ripe figs of a fig tree. Same concept. A lot of times throughout the Bible, God speaks through agricultural um, examples. And it's, it's hard because in our lives right now, most of us are not agriculture people. Right, so you miss some of these. But behold, thy people in the midst of, of thee are women. The gates of thy land shall be set wide open upon thine enemies. The fire shall devour thy bars. Draw thee waters from the siege. Fortify thy strongholds. Go into clay and tread the mortar. Make strong the brickland. See, God is saying towards the end of the chapter here, the end of the book, go ahead and make up your fortified strongholds. Build your extra walls do whatever you want to do to try to fortify this city, it's coming down. Your attempt to defend against my word is not going to work. And so whatever you want to try to do, just go ahead. There shall the fire devoureth thee, the sword shall cut thee off, it shall eat thee up like the canker worm. Make thyself many as the canker worm, make thyself many as the locusts. Thou hast multiplied thy merchants above the stars of heaven. The canker worm spoileth and flieth away. Stars of heaven is an interesting phrase. It's used exactly 11 times in the Bible, and it can mean both the children of Israel and the angelic host, both. So when Lucifer rebelled, God's family was fractured, okay? Because the stars of heaven, speaking of the angelic host, when Lucifer rebelled and and God always wanted a family. That's what he's after, is a family. He lost his family. It fractured. So it's no wonder he uses that same phrase 
when he's speaking to Abraham and all of the Jewish descendants that your descendants will be as the stars of heaven. He's trying to build a family again. He wants that family back. Okay, that, that's one reason the church, but Israel reject him, rejected him, and it too is fractured until he restores it at the end of the seven-year tribulation. But that's one reason we as the church are now co-heirs with Christ. Satan, Lucifer, was the anointed cherub that covered God's throne. He blew it. God offered this inheritance to the Israelites, to Abraham. They blew it. So then God offers it to us, the church. That's why in Romans 8, 16 through 17, we are co-heirs with Christ. You and I are grafted into that inheritance with Christ because Israel totally rejected it. And they were to rule and reign with him on the earth. Jesus wanted to set up his throne. Remember, he offered the kingdom to them when he showed up the first time. Had you accepted me, this wouldn't have been John the Baptist. It would have been Elijah, and we would have been ushering in the kingdom, but they didn't. Uh, That's a promise in Malachi that God will send Elijah again before that great and dreadful day. So, in any case, you and I get to be glorified with Christ as a result of all of this. But the stars of heaven, you can check this out. Genesis 26.4, God speaking to Abraham, right? I'll make thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven. Exodus 32.13, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven. Deuteronomy 1.10, behold, ye are this day as the stars of heaven for multitude. Moses is speaking to Israel. Deuteronomy 10.22, Uh, God hath made thee as the stars of heaven for multitude. He uses this all over the Bible. Deuteronomy 28, 62, whereas ye were as the stars of heaven for multitude. Nehemiah 9, 23, their children also multipliest thou as the stars of heaven. Isaiah 13, 10, for the stars of heaven and the constellations therefore shall not give their light. Now God is, he's speaking of something during the tribulation but he's also speaking of something, not just the stars of heaven that you go out to see, but likely a lot of the angelic host as well. Mark 13, 25, and the stars of heaven shall fall and the powers that are in heaven shall be shaken. The stars of heaven being that angelic host. Remember, Lucifer took a third of the angels with him when he rebelled. Revelation six thirteen, and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth. That's back in Mark. Jesus declares that, Mark 13, and the stars of heaven shall fall. Well, it occurs in Revelation 6, verse 13, and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth. And there he even uses the fig tree again. Even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs. In Revelation 12, Revelation 12 is a, is a paradigm of the entire Bible, a summary in one chapter of the whole Bible. It's amazing. But remember, speaking of Satan when he rebelled, and his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, See, when Lucifer rebelled and became known then as Satan, before his fall, he was Lucifer, his tell or his lie, not the Lord's using an idiom here because he is the red dragon in Revelation, but his tell, his lie, T-A-L-E, his tell, drew a third part of the angels with him. They bought the lie. They bought the lie that they could mass together an army big enough to defeat the living God and become, as Isaiah 14 declares, like the Most High. That's what he wants to be. He wants to surplant and be co-heirs with Jesus. And that's one of the reasons why right now, when you think about what is Satan doing, he's trying to wipe out Israel because of the promise in Hosea 5.15 
that they have to confess their sin, that they missed Jesus the first time. Hosea 5.15, you can go check that out. They have to cry out to the Lord and confess their sin, and then Jesus shows up to rescue them. And that's at the very end of the tribulation, Revelation 19. Isaiah 63 is when he, Jesus goes to rescue them, uh, where they're nourished in the wilderness. But in any case, if he can wipe out the Jews, they can't forgive or repent and confess their sin, thus Jesus can't return. That's Satan's logic. Again, his war being with the word, because then he can have eternal dominion over, over the earth in his mind. Okay, these were great atrocities. The Lord would not be tolerated any longer of what the Ninevites were doing back then. Okay, we're just about finished here in verse 17. Thy crowned are as the locusts, and thy captains as the great grasshoppers, which camp in the hedges in the cold day. But when the sun ariseth, they flee away, and their place is not known where they are. Okay, locusts are often referred to in the Bible as armies of God. You can find this all over the place. Um, in the Proverbs, God even tucks in a little verse, Behold, the locusts go, and, and he's speaking of natural insect locusts in Proverbs, where he says, the locusts go to and forth and they have no king. So in Revelation 9, when you see the locusts from the bottomless pit and they have a king over them, you know that those are not just the normal locusts you go out in the driveway and hear at night. This is something very demonic going on. But God refers to them as these demonic fallen entities in Revelation 9 as the locusts and they come out of the bottomless pit. See, so remember in Revelation 9, a great star falls from heaven and to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. Right now over in Europe, CERN is trying to open that bottomless pit. And if you haven't, if you haven't studied that or looked into that scientifically, check it out. It's pretty wild what they are doing over there. But the authority for them to do that at some point will be given to an angel, a star that falls from heaven. Now, we won't be here. The church is gone. But the inner... The, interdimensional spiritual war is going to be off the map, off the charts when, we, when the church is removed, when the restraining Holy Spirit is taken out of this place. Okay, Nahum 3, verse 18, Thy shepherds slumber, O king of Assyria. Thy nobles shall dwell in the dust. Thy people is scattered upon the mountains, and no man gathereth them. So just think about the, what happens to sheep without a shepherd, right? Uh, again, a lot of us aren't farmers or agricultural people, but sheep are really, really dumb. They, they just do anything. You could, as, even as a shepherd, you could lead them to the edge of a cliff. They would just follow you and walk right off and not even know it. That's why shepherds had to be so diligent of guarding their sheep constantly uh, because wolves would come in and just tear them up. They'd go astray. If a gate was open, they'd wander off somewhere. It's why uh, Jesus, I think, uses that phrase of his people a lot, right? The, we're the sheep. He's the good shepherd, praise God that he never leaves us nor forsakes us. But man, if we didn't have Jesus, how many of us would just walk off a cliff somewhere, you know, just to do it <laughs> a lot. In verse 19 here, this is the last verse of uh, Nahum, it closes the book. There's no healing of thy bruise, thy wound is grievous. All that hear the brute, the brute of thee shall clap the hands over thee, for upon whom hath not thy wickedness passed continually. In other words, who have you not been wicked to, Nineveh and Assyria? Your wickedness has passed over all these other nations. And so nations, the world is going to celebrate your destruction. 
They're going to clap their hands and cheer for the destruction of Nineveh. There are a lot of prophecies fulfilled in the book of Nahum. I think I picked out 10 for us to look at real quick. But in Nahum chapter 3, verse 12, we just cover it. The Assyrian fortresses surrounding the city would be captured. Okay, that was a prophecy back in verse 12. If you read the Babylonian Chronicle, recorded that the fortified towers around the area of Nineveh began to fall in 614 B.C., so that was fulfilled, literally. Nineveh would prepare bricks and mortar for emergency defenses when the city was besieged. That's in Nahum chapter 3, verse 14. In the history of Assyria, by, it was published by the Chicago Press in 1951. They wrote, as they were discovering Nineveh, they wrote, to the south of the gate, the moat is still filled with the fragments of stone and mud bricks from the walls heaped up when they were breached. See, they were trying to build these extra walls around their city. Remember when the Lord said, go ahead and fortify your walls, get the brick layers, lay the brick, mortar them up. It doesn't matter. We're going to come in anyway. Nahum chapter 3 verse 13 declared that the city gates would be destroyed. Again, in the Chicago Press in 1951, they wrote, the main attack was directed from the northwest and the brunt fell upon I'm sorry, the, te the text is kind of small back there. Upon the gate at this corner, within the gate are traces of the counter wall raised by the inhabitants of their last extremity. So the gates were destroyed, literally. The Ninevites would be like drunkards. Remember we talked about how they'd be dizzy from Nahum chapter 1, verse 10. That's all there in the beginning. And chapter 3, verse 11. Uh, the Bibliotheca Historia in section 2.26.4 wrote, the Assyrian king distributed to his soldiers meats and liberal supplies of wine and provisions. And while the whole army was thus <laughs> arousing, the friends of the Abraics learned that from some deserters of the, of the slackness and drunkenness which prevailed in the enemy's camp and made an unexpected attack by night. So some of, they were so drunk and out of it, some of the people escaped the city from the siege and went and led the report to the enemy that they were dizzy, they were drunken, and so that gave them room to attack. Okay, Nineveh would be destroyed by a flood. That's in Nahum 1.8, 2.6, and 2.8, again from the same book. In the third year of the siege, heavy rains caused a nearby river to flood part of the city and break part of the walls. And remember earlier on in chapter 1 when we looked at that, we also learned that part of the river Tigris was diverted and it undermined a big portion of the wall and it fell. So these are all just, I'm just giving you these because this is, this is proof. You can show this to someone, that God declared it 40 years before it happened. Then we thought the city was a myth until it was discovered. And when they discovered it, look at what they wrote about it, how God's word was fulfilled literally as he declared. Nineveh would be destroyed by a fire. That's in Nahum 1.10, 2.13, and 3.15. Uh, R. Campbell Thompson, R. V. Hutchinson in 1929 out of London they, they were an archaeological pair, but they had archaeological excavations at Nineveh had revealed charred wood, charcoal, and ashes. There was no question about the clear traces of burning of the temple as also in the place of Sennacherib. Remember him from the Bible? For a layer of ash about two inches thick lay clearly defined in places on the southeast side about the level of the Sargon pavement. So it was charred. God's word was fulfilled again, literally. There'd be a multitude of the slain in Nahum 3, verse 3. Again, from the Bibliotheca Historia in that section there. In two battles fought on the plain before the city, the rebels defeated the Assyrians 
So great was the multitude of the slain that the flowing stream mingled with their blood, changed its color for a considerable distance. So there were so many Assyrians that were dead, their blood changed the color of the river for quite a way. Okay, number eight here. Plundering and pillaging would accompany the overthrow of the city. That's in Nahum 2, 9 through 10. Ancient records of the Assyrian Babylonia. Great quantities of the spoil from the city, beyond counting, they carried off. The city they turned into a mound and ruined heap. So they, they, the enemies took great spoil out of Assyria, out of Nineveh. When Nineveh would be captured, the people would try to escape. That's in Nahum chapter 2, verse 8. And again, from the Bibliotheca Historia, they wrote, um, that king there sent away his three sons and two daughters with much treasure. So the king of Assyria, he sent his, two, his sons, three sons and two daughters, so his five kids. He gave them a lot of uh, treasury, a lot of gold and silver and loot, and sent them off to a province that he had an allegiance with to try to get them to escape the most loyal of his subjects. So they tried, when Nineveh was captured, they, a lot of people tried to escape and leave, and that was fulfilled literally. Nineveh's images and idols would be destroyed in Nahum 1 verse 9 and verse 14, all the way back in chapter 1. Those same people, Thompson and Hutchinson wrote, the statue of the goddess Ishtar lay headless in the debris of Nineveh's ruins. See, they, they worshipped Ishtar, the, the goddess of heaven. Um, it's a horrible idolatry that also is rooted in Babylon. Nineveh's destruction would be final. That's in Nahum 1 verse 9 and verse 14. And throughout the Middle East, many cities that were destroyed were rebuilt over the years. Just think about Jerusalem. How many times was Jerusalem ransacked and, and wiped out, but it was always rebuilt? God had a promise for it, but not Nineveh. God promised it would never be rebuilt again, and it wasn't. And like I mentioned, many thought it'd be just a legend, not an actual physical city. So the book of Nahum, God's final warning to a people. You know, we have, God has a final warning for us as his church as well. And it's, it's not one of destruction. It's one of anticipation. Destruction for the world, great glory, and in the presence of the Lord for his people. And just like in Nahum, where the declaration of destruction of Israel's enemies, he comforted Israel and the Jews, and it was great hope to them. The same is for you and I. That like we studied in God's prophetic word for those 13 weeks, when you see this beast system rising up and, and spilling over some into our day and age of what's being set up, make sure you understand that while God declares great destruction for these people that would try to rewrite the Bible, uh, right now they're saying AI is going to rewrite the Bible finally and we'll have a Bible that is, quote, acceptable, you know, that's, they're doing that. Uh, China just rewrote the Bible. And they, the story in John where those people are around the woman, the woman in adultery to stone her, and Jesus comes and starts writing their sin in the, in, the, in the floor of the temple. He's writing in stone. He's not writing in dirt. He's writing in stone, just like he did in the Ten Commandments with his finger, which is one of the reasons they were so shocked, because he's sitting there with his finger writing in concrete. And as those people backed away, the Bible in China has Jesus stoning that young woman because she was a dissident to the state. And that's what they study over there. So that it's a socialist Bible. Now, 
AI, when you listen to Yuval Noah Harari and the world, the WEF, um, to use their acronym, the we have no idea what we're talking about group, when you listen to them and they declare just recently, we're going to have AI rewrite the Bible. We'll finally have a Bible that is right for the world. This is one of the ways that in the final days when the church is gone, that people will be led astray because they're going to be given a false Bible. A false, the, the word of God will not be readily available like it is for you and I right now. Again, the attack is on the word. We have to get rid of the word because the word declares victory and Jesus coming back and they don't want that. Satan does not want that. And so God does have a final warning for this world and it's you better wake up. And as we draw closer to that time, you know, everyone scoffed at Noah and thought he was crazy that it would never rain until the day he entered the ark. And all debate was gone. Everything ended right at that moment. And there will come a time that you're going to hear a shout from heaven and get caught up and that door is going to close and all debate is going to end. And, that, and the world is going to be looking for answers and right now, we have got to be salt and light and living out the word of God so that those answers, fragments and remnants of those answers are left behind for them to find. Get as many people into the ark as you can right now. That's, our, that's what we've got to do. We've got to live strong for the Lord. And in doing so, you as a Christ believer, Holy Spirit-filled believer who is on this sanctification pro- process like we all are, Remember Revelation 3.11. Behold, I come quickly, Jesus said. Behold that, hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. See, you and I have something we can lose, and it's not our salvation. It is your place alongside the Lord for all eternity. Let no man take thy crown. And there are these rewards in the Bible. They're all over the Bible. There's five crowns. And I just want to read a few of these. Usually I have these listed. Uh, but the word crown, it shows up 66 times in the Bible. And I always give you the references, but I just thought I'd read a few of them so you can see what I'm talking about. Each one of these is tied to something different you do in your life. Okay, the crown of life from James 1.12. Let's look at that one. Blessed is a man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. See, if you endure temptation and don't fall astray, you'll be given the crown of life on the other side of this. That's a crown you have to look forward to. The crown of righteousness from 2 Timothy 4.8. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. So if you are looking toward the second coming of Christ to call us home, his appearing where he meets us in the clouds. He hasn't set foot on earth yet. That happens in Revelation 19. We come back with him to step foot on the earth. But to meet him in the clouds with a great shout that's going to wake the very dead in Christ to go up with him, there's a crown of righteousness waiting for you on the other side of this. Isn't that amazing? I mean, that's just two examples. You can look these up. And I don't think that's an all-inclusive list. I think that's the Lord tucks those in his word to give you and I a sense of what it is to live for him. You have hope on the other side of this, hope of an expected end to live in glory with the Lord. And he has these promises all over Revelation to the overcomer. 
I used to only have eight on this slide, and when I went back through it last time, I found a new one that I had never picked up before. It's number five on the list. I had to put it in chronological order through the verses, but the rewards for the overcomer, to eat of the tree of life, not heard of the second death, hidden manna, a white stone, and a new name. Do you know that Jesus has a name for you that you don't even know yet? If you'll overcome and stay faithful and continue to press on with him, power over the nations, the morning star, that's a reward I had never, I had never picked up before in the Bible. And so when I'm when I encourage all of you to keep going through it, no matter how many times you've gone through it, that it's so amazing. You can go through it so many times and still miss things. And the Lord just highlights it as you go back and you continue on this journey. But that was one he showed me last time that I had, I had missed before. Now, the morning star, we know that's Jesus. He's the only one that's the bright and morning star. Remember Satan, though, his name was the son of the morning? That's how you know he was Jesus's personal angel. He was the one that surrounded God's throne. He's the one that surrounded his throne in Ezekiel 28. So, white raiment, you're given that in Revelation 3, 5, a pillar and a new name, to sit with Christ on his throne. These are all promises to the church. When you find in Revelation the tribulation saints, none of these promises apply to them. They're given palm branches and they serve the king night and day in his temple. It's a different group of people with a different destiny. Praise God, they're in heaven with us. But you have such a unique opportunity right now to rule and reign with Christ after this is all over and to inherit all things. Okay, so to be an overcomer, you've got to remain loyal to God. Revelation 2, 1 through 3, like the church at Ephesus. Remember, don't lose your first love. Overcome trials and tribulations while remaining faithful. Be spiritually zealous for the Lord. Do not deny Jesus from Revelation 3, 8, and 10. Do not defile your garments and keep the word of his patience from Revelation 3, 10. You, you have something to look forward to that no man can take from you. Okay, you've got to stay faithful and run this race that the Lord sets before us, especially as we see the day approaching from the book of Hebrews. We've got to press on and we've got to be watchful. Remember the Lord called us to be watchful. Watch therefore, watch therefore, take he heed, watch therefore, watch ye therefore. I mean, I think he wants us to watch. He says it so many times. And I say, what I say unto you all, I say unto all, watch, just simply watch. Keep your eyes up on Jesus from Luke 21. Remember when you see all these things begin to pass, look up for your redemption draws nigh. If you're here and you don't know the Lord or if you found us, you're listening to this later, and you need Jesus to forever be born again. It's very simple, Romans 10, 9. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus, thou must be born again in the spirit. See, once you're born again, how can one be unborn? You can't. You and I, no matter what we would wanna do, you cannot go back and be unborn. I, I will forever be the son of Carrie and Richard of Lawton, Oklahoma. I can't change that. When you are born again in the spirit, you will forever be a child of Jesus. You can never lose that. And praise God, he paid for it all on the cross. You don't have to add anything to it. It's not Jesus on the cross plus you doing a lot of things. If that's the case, then his work wasn't sufficient. His work is sufficient. The question is, what do you do with it? But it's Romans 10, 9, thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. You shall be saved. If you need to do that today, Please come see me afterwards. Come see someone, grab us. And with that, I'll close this in prayer. 
And please, again, please be praying with me on what we cover next. Love you guys. Lord, we thank you so much for this time together. God, we praise your name. We thank you that your word is inexhaustible. We thank you, God, that you've preserved Nahum for us all of these thousands of years. We pray, Lord, that if there is anyone that's watching this, that has seen this, that is here today, that doesn't know you, Jesus, we pray that you would move mountains in their lives. Lord, let them surrender and give their life to you this day. Let them be born again and confess with their mouth that you are king and that you raised again on the third day for them. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your word. Be with us as we leave this place. And as we gather here again next Sunday, be with us in whatever book you would have us open next week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.